We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over Hello everyone and welcome to Femidish, a podcast that seeks to explore the various intersections of food and feminism by sharing the stories of women from around the world and celebrating their unique abilities to nourish themselves and one another. I'm Sandy, and I am here with my co-host tonight, Hope. Hello, Hope. Hey, everyone. And we are so glad to have two awesome guests tonight, Nirta and Krista. Hello. Hi. These women are from the League of Kitchens. The League of Kitchens is an immersive cultural cooking experience based in New York City, led by immigrant women. And we are so excited to have an instructor from League of Kitchens, as well as some staff to help explain about what the organization is and introduce it to all of you. So Krista and Mirta, I'm going to turn it over to both of you. And um, Krista, why don't you start us off and tell us a bit about what the League of Kitchens is as an organization? Sure. So we opened for business back in 2014. um, And... So in normal times, what the League of Kitchens does is we offer culturally immersive cooking classes in New York City that are led by immigrant women who are exceptional home cooks, and they would welcome you into their homes, teach you their family recipes. Um, I think unlike traditional cooking classes, our workshops are very much centered around community and connections. Participants have the opportunity to cook together, learn together, share culture, share stories, Uh, but Of course, currently we've transitioned to an online class model, but it is, again, it's still very much a shared human experience as much as it is a cooking technique class. These, even these online opportunities are interactive experiences where we have participants cook along in real time with instructors, chat, ask questions, hear stories of ancestors and childhoods and and places from around the world, like Iran and Mexico, Argentina, and and more. That's great. Thank you for that. And Krista, what is your role at League of Kitchens? Yeah, I'm the communications and marketing manager. Awesome. Mirta, tell us about your involvement with League of Kitchens, please. Uh, Okay. So I'm Mirta. I'm the Argentinian instructor for the League of Kitchens. Um, I'm from Mendoza, Argentina. Mendoza is the land of Malbec, and oh. uh, there are over 1,500 wineries today in Argentina. In Mendoza, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing, the industry and uh, the varieties of Malbec that we have. Um, League of Kitchens came to me through a friend who called me and says, I just sent you a link of something that I think has your name on it. And I said, I'll check it out. I always cooked for my friends to entertain from scratch. I can do anything in Eddie Marty's house. So uh, when I read the, the concept of the League of Kitchens, it was a perfect platform to continue with my passions and showcase my culture and love for food and be able to share our traditions. 
Um, so it was for me very inspiring. Um, and uh, I applied and they liked my idea. And, um, and I need those classes at home, as a matter of fact. Now that I'm teaching online, but I miss the warmth of people and uh, the sharing that uh, our classes uh, created um, at home. Um, that's, so, so, that's so great that a, that a friend connected you with League of Kitchens. What kind of, what, like, what, what were you doing with, for your friends, with your family down in Ar Argentina that they were like, oh, this is definitely for Mirta? Like, what, right. were you hosting a lot of people, cooking a lot? Yeah, well, because I always cooked for my friends. If there was an event or a celebration, they always called me and said, you think you can? I always can. I always love to do it. And, but I have a whole history of cooking uh, here and in Argentina. And um, so for me, having this opportunity and uh, my friend appreciated my talents, um, um, it was just uh, a perfect match. So I, I've done very high profile events uh, for 12 years before, and that um, helped me with the visuals and um, the, the aspects of um, about food and how I wanted to present food every time I cook. I, I love the, 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 the colors. I, I like the music with the food. Um, it's just the whole experience that I try to um, recreate and transmit it to my people. Now, Mirta, I'm, you're talking about all of these um, kind of like wonder ga wonderful gatherings that you've planned for friends and family and just enjoying cooking for other people. Um, but, and Krista mentioned that League of Kitchens was for like really good home cooks, but you're more than a home cook, correct? You, you've also worked with food professionally and uh, well, yeah, but I'm not a, sh a professional chef. I always cook. I took many courses um, here in Argentina about different different uh, parts of the uh, culinary world, but I never went to school, to culinary school to study. So I'm, uh, I love all cultures, and I was always very curious about other cuisines and flavors. And um, let's say at, at one point for about 10 years, I even organized uh, theme uh, gatherings in Argentina. So every time I traveled, I traveled with different spices, uh, Chinese spices, Indian spices. And we have a theme in Argentina with my friends that are food lovers and we even dress for the occasion or we call the band that was this spanish uh, um, cuisine was just uh, even with music um, it was just amazing that i could organize every time that i traveled to mendoza my friends were all waiting and and asking so what would be the theme this time and I, I have great memories of those times. And uh, I have a lot of friends who are artists, painters. 
So I brought for the Indian feast, I, I even brought henna. He was painting everybody's skin and, and just, you know, we made it a, a whole a whole feast and, and celebration about different different cuisines. Wow, those sound like some incredibly immersive um, yeah. gatherings. I mean, I want to go. <laughs> They're, uh, unbelievable. I have great photos of those moments. <laughs> We interviewed um, a woman who owns a restaurant um, in Arizona, and she was saying when she was getting into um, the culinary world, she would host events kind of very similar to what you were just saying, too, about, you know, she would have some friends from different different cuisine cultures, and she would ask them, and, okay, you know, what should I make, and what can we do? And she said the same thing about how many people would just come, and it was so fun, and it was so engaging, and um, I just think that's such a, a... a showcase a testament to how much food does bring people together. Everyone wants to experience something new and um, a different culture. And, um, and, you know, like you said, you would bring henna as well. It wasn't just the food. It was an introduction to a whole, a whole culture. Right. I brought my saris and for the Spanish, I bought my, my flamenco dress. I mean, Uh we went to town with this, with this party. (laughs) So you're like always, you're planning parties, you're planning big feasts, you're getting in there and and making it happen. That's right. That's right. (laughs) And then the family, you know, since I'm I'm a little girl, I remember uh, hosting um, with my cousins, all for Mother's Day especially, uh, hosting the parties. We were in charge of the food. We made little things, but it was important our contribution to to the party and but we we had uh, choreographers we have a whole production and i i remember all that with with you know it was so fun so so beautiful i have a, a beautiful childhood anyways yeah. but hearing Mirta's story and just like thinking of all of our instructors and thinking of all of the history that they carry, every single one of them has such a unique and such a dynamic story prior to their life with the League of Kitchens. And I think like it's, they are exceptional home cooks, but I think that's just such a, it's such a key component to their identities. But I think it's so much more than that, that makes them so incredible at, at, leading these these classes and these experiences because I think that they're truly like they're culinary and cultural lineage holders I guess like they they hold the knowledge and expertise of their cultures in a very unique way true that's true really and then honoring uh, the the women in my family that everyone was an expert in something my mom was pasta pasta we ate pasta twice a week. Thursdays and Sundays was pasta day. My mom could cook, could cook for, for 20 in, in an hour. She was amazing. And, um, you know, Sundays in Argentina, by the way, are the most important day of the week to gather. It's a family day, usually lunches. And what's for to eat is probably un asado, barbecue, or pasta. And in the summertime, things change and everybody brings food and, and with food and, and parts or desserts or whatever they're planning to do. 
So. Now, Mirta, you were talking about all these different cuisines um, that you, you've prepared before for different parties. And um, first, I want to say that, you know, my children have been asking me, they're, they're quite young, but my oldest is five and he wants to do exactly what you're talking about. Parties where, you know, I guess right now it would just be us four, but where we make food from another culture and we listen to their music and um, we kind of like learn about their culture. He's something he just really asked me to do recently. So I'm very inspired hearing how you incorporated all these different parts of culture into it. But, um, you know, you, you talk about preparing food from all different cultures. Now, the classes that you're teaching, teaching for League of Kitchen, are they exclusively Argentinian food? Is it very traditional? Or do you allow these influences from other cuisines that you might be familiar with to kind of infiltrate your recipes? Okay, um, we all cook what we learn growing up. So you, we don't, we don't necessarily have a specific uh, culinary technique to cook, but what we do have is good tips that if you go to any restaurant or you read any book and uh, the tip that you learn in, in your aunt's quiz, uh, kitchen or in your mom's kitchen are very unique. Those are the things that we share the most in our classes. In my class in particular, I have um, the first part of the classes when we hosted them from home, um, I waited with the music. Music is important. So I, I had folk music that I preferred, and then we, we dined with tango, with piazzola. So I moved them through different... Uh, kinds of folk music and tangos, and uh, but that was part of the background. And the first thing I did uh, to greet my my students was I opened them to the mate ceremony. <clears throat> the mate ceremony I was teaching. Uh, it, mate is our national drink. It's the most important drink that we can have in our country. Uh, it's a long story about yerba mate, but in my class, I teach them the ceremonial part of serving a good mate. Mate is a tea. It's an infusion. And uh, we use gourds, gourds that we stuff with yerba mate. We introduce a metal straw where we sip through and we add hot water, not boiling water, hot water to it, and you zip through. And that is uh, a tradition in a family circle and friends. We share only one mate. And it's, it's something that I compare to the peace pie because it's a ceremonial and you share it in a circle. And it goes from one hand to another hand. So the way you do it, you, I serve the mate. Let's say I'm the, the, the person who serves the mate. I drink the first one because it's a very bitter herb. I, I introduce sugar to it as well um, for the bitterness. And uh, I drink the first mate. When I finish, I fill it up with water and I pass it to the next person. That person finishes their mate. Give it back to me. I feel it again and pass it to the next person and the next person, and it goes in a circle. So for the classes, everybody has its own mate. 
and it's a way to put the 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 herbal tea inside the gourd, the way you prepare that. It's a whole thing about it. And the language of yerba mate, when you return the mate to the server, if you are done drinking mate, you say thank you. Otherwise, you don't say thank you and keep, and keep going in around serving the mates one at a time. So if you go to Argentina and somebody offers you uh, a mate, you must say yes because it's it's a gesture of friendliness and and welcoming and it's very important for for us that that drink. And the history of the yerba mate it's long. It was um, made in um, originally was from Paraguay. And the Jesuits came to America in the 1500s, discovered in Paraguay that the indigenous used yerba mate, but they didn't know how to process. And uh, the, the years passed, the Jesuits were expelled out of the country uh, of America, and they come back in the early 1900s and uh, move the plantations from Paraguay to the north of Argentina, to Misiones, and that is the biggest plantation in the world of yerba mate. The Jesuits taught the indigenous how to process yerba mate. It needs a process of frosting, and, but it's, uh, it's part of our culture. It's just, uh, you know, it's always a good time to drink, to have another mate. No, I, I had no idea that um, mate had such a rich history. I, I remember actually the first time I was offered it, and it's funny that you're saying if you're offered, you have to drink it because I was actually quite young. I was still a teenager, so like 15 or 16 at like this international student organization for like potential student leaders. Um, and these boys offered me mate and I, I drank it. <laughs> But I just thought it was so weird that they were offering me like from their same cup, and it, it culturally it was different for me at the time. It was right. something really experienced, like sharing a drink with a stranger. Right. you know, yerba uh, mate has a lot of uh, qualities. It's antioxidant, has selenium, magnesium, calcium, and um, and the ten percent of the production of yerba mate that goes out. Uh, for export goes to Syria. Syria consumes 10% of the yerba mate from Argentina. They came, um, they, you know, in in the mid-1800s to 1955, Argentina accepted 6 million people. So we are a country of immigrants, like the States. And I grew up with all kinds of people and nationalities. So the Syrians came to to Mendoza, especially a lot, a big community, and they they went back to Syria and took the tradition with them. It's very important for them to drink mate. Wow! Thank mm-hmm. you so much for sharing that with us. That's so interesting. I, I obviously I've seen yerba mate a lot, but I had no idea mm-hmm. all the that huge significance behind it. Right, and it's, uh, it, it, you know, children drink mate. Um, you have babies sometimes if they can, they can suck from the, from the uh, 
uh, straw. But um, in in excess, if you drink, I don't know, twenty mates, it's an um, a stimulant. So I used to drink mate when I studied at night. I studied all night, and that was keeping me awake. So it's wonderful to have uh, a whole night. Uh, if you need to be awake, yerba mate keeps you awake. <laughs> so, That's good to know. <laughs> I'm really curious because I, I wouldn't have necessarily known that yerba mate was um... – you know, kind of a big part of Argentinian culture. I've, I've shared it a lot with Uruguayan friends. And also, I guess I wouldn't have realized, um, I, I guess maybe this is a fault of my own limited worldview, but I just never would have thought of Argentina as being, like you said, a um, country of immigrants. And so that kind of leads me to two things. What, like, what does, what is traditional Argentinian food and, you know, maybe how that might differ from really what it's what it is because of all of the immigration and the, the blending of different cultures. Right. Well, you know, the country it's pretty defined. If you divide the map of Argentina, the north of Argentina is mostly um, Spaniards, people from Spain, and the way they cook is very different from Mendoza, let's say, because they have the influence from Bolivia and Peru different spices they eat with more spices than we do they use more sweets than we do and um the center of the country is the italians arrive at the center of the of the country mendoza san juan san luis and they uh, master the wine industry they have previous experience from europe and they Excelled the the terrain excelled in Mendoza, and they became the makers, the first makers of wine in Mendoza. And the south is in Patagonia. Is uh, we have the biggest Welsh community, and we have Germans, we have uh, Austrians. Uh, they have good fishing. They have different kinds of desserts. They have um, the black cake, the Galles black cake. They have many berries. They have um, different cuisine. And, and But the influence is what every area of Argentina uh, it's been influenced by. So um, I have uh, an influence from the Italians and uh, the Spanish and very, very um, native Argentinians. My mom's family was from Spain and from native Argentinians and native. Um, So um, my father was Italian and mix of Basque as well. But um, we cook with that influence. Like, uh, you know, pasta is, is part of, of my everyday <laughs> yeah. cuisine because I grew up with that. But I was curious about learning other cultures. The beautiful thing about the League of Kitchens is that we have amazing cooks with incredible experiences and a lot of knowledge and it's a camaraderie that we have that we don't compete, we share, we share our cuisine, we take our 
the I take other instructors' classes and compare cuisines, and it's just a beautiful community between us that the uh, legal kitchen have, have created with all these nationalities and sharing. I couldn't agree more. It feels like, in my position, it feels like I have 12 grandmothers from <laughs> different countries. It's such a beautiful experience. That's got to be, I mean, I would just want to go and, I mean, into that building and just like absorb all that energy. Like if, if the goal of, we were talking about how, um, you know, food is such a great way to engage other people and learn about cultures. And then you have these amazing women that are so talented at that and want to share and want to that. And then you have all of them in the same place. <laughs> oh, yeah. yes. it's the United Nations of, uh... <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, who tell us about some of the other uh, women instructors? What what else do they? What cuisines do they do they share? Yeah, so we have we have instructors from twelve different countries right now. Online cooking, we have instructor. We have six of our instructors cooking. So our six instructors who are cooking online are Mirta, um, who is our Argentinian instructor. We also have Yamini, who is our Indian instructor. Angie, who is our Mexican instructor, Mab, who is our Persian instructor, and Despina, who is our Greek instructor, and Demira, who is our Uzbek instructor. Wow, that's like from every corner of the world. Yeah, and, and it's, the thing that makes it so great is the fact that like everything, it's so different. It's so unique. Like if you Google like, Uzbek cooking class, like you're not going to find anything else other than the League of <laughs> Yeah. Uh, tell us about um, how things have changed. I know that you just said there were the online instructors. Um, what what were typical classes like uh, BC before Corona? And, <laughs> and what are classes like now? Yeah. So before Corona, we had two different sorts of classes called a taste of class, which was a shorter model. Um, which is around two and a half hours. And then we had a full day class, an immersive experience, um, which was four and a half hours long, where it was up to six people would come to the instructor's homes and cook along with them. There would always be a welcome gathering of food that was prepared that the instructor would prepare. Everyone would sit, gather, get to know one another, share experiences, what was going to happen, what brought them to the League of Kitchens. Um, and then we would get into preparing the food that would be cooked later in the day. The taste of model was a bit smaller. It was a briefer menu. Um, and then the other experience was a more extensive menu. And it, it was, again, it, it's so much of a shared human experience and not just like, I'm going to sit here and like chop onions and learn how to chop onions. And like, then I'm going to know this recipe. It's, learning these stories from these women, it's really reversing power dynamics of like who yields like culinary power. Um, typically like you would, you would, you would think that like immigrant women are, are traditionally going to be in this subservient position, like in this country, like doing these things, listening, following along. Whereas the entire intention of our model is, to make sure that they are the gatekeepers of this knowledge. They are the hosts. They are the experts. They are the teachers. They are the ones who are in control of their domain. Yeah. And, and, and the classes at home were like, uh, it created a, a community. I saw people just 
exchanging phones. Oh, we go in, uh, we go into Brooklyn. You want to take the the ride with us? And it's just uh, amazing. After five hours cooking with people, it, it created a, a very special bonding. And the experience, my experience with the online classes, I will say, is really cute. I will say it. I really enjoy the the class and what i teach is i teach how to make gnocchis uh, gnocchis uh, that i got from my mom's recipe and seeing people just show me the size of the potatoes so everybody's showing the size of the potatoes okay that potato needs to be cut halfway three parts whatever and at the end okay this is the texture that i'm looking for so showing the texture and everybody just showing the dough and the screen and at the end of the class we all sit and have dinner together so as, as I experienced my first class, I realized that we were very connected, even though I have a person in Australia, a person in Portland, a person, two people in Brooklyn, and we were all connected through the same taste, the same flavor, and the same smell in the kitchen. Because I made pesto, the smell of basil, it's in every kitchen, in whatever you are, you're experiencing the smell of the food that we're preparing. So I felt there was a good, interesting connection through flavors doing these online classes. Because at the end, everybody shows what they've done, the salad, the gnocchis, and we're all ready to eat. And because you are in everybody's home, at the end, at the end of the class for dinner time, the husband joins, the kids join the table, and it created a, a big community all over the world. Yeah, and just like to explain just a little bit of the logistics behind what we did to make that transition. So we were a bit hesitant, um, honestly. Lisa, our CEO and founder, and myself. Um, we're just a bit hesitant because there's so much that you get to experience with these in-person classes because they're not held in like a commercial kitchen. There's not like one designated space that people were going to for these classes. Like these, our instructors welcome you into their homes. Like you see where they live, you see everything about their domain and their, their experience. And, and so we, we weren't quite sure, like, can we create something? Can we recreate something like that virtually? Um, and it's, it's incredible to see the way that this has truly blossomed because as Mirta said, like, there's so many folks that we will hear say, you know, like, is there a league of kitchens in Seattle? Is there a league of kitchens in Orlando? Is there a league of kitchens in Texas? I really want to take a class. Like, how can I do this? And by bringing it online and making it virtual, like folks can take this everywhere. Like we've had folks in, in like South America take classes and New Zealand take classes. And this is also honestly like another opportunity for folks, like especially that are unable to travel, who have family across the country, who have family in other parts of the world to come together and share a moment and, and learn something, but also like learn something about someone else in a totally different culture, cook something they may have never thought they could make before and doing it with the opportunity to have someone guide you through it step by step. They're doing it at the exact same time. You see what they're doing. You can ask them the questions. They could show you what they're doing. 
and like you get that level of technique and also that warmth. Mm-hmm. And the, the you know, legal kitchens was feature also uh, the main feature story of uh, in the uh, Oprah magazine, and they came to photograph my class as well. And after that, I think a lot of uh, question inquiring was about having uh, these classes all over the world yeah. and it's happening now. Hmm. Yeah. So it's almost like a, a different, like, even though the goal is the same of, of bringing people and in, in introduce them to these cultures and do it and learning how to even cook and um, connect and all that different kind of stuff, having it online almost does a different kind of thing. It's like you're, like you said, you're bringing people from all over the world to this place that might have never gotten access to the cooking classes before if it wasn't in their place, um, if it, you know, where they lived. Um, but then also, like you said, how the, the husbands would come and the kids would come. So now it's a family experience. Now they're sitting exactly. down, they're sharing with their families. And um, so it's just, it's different. And they're maybe a little more independent because they can't just say, oh, you know, teacher, can you come over and help me? Like they kind of have to be a little more on their own. So it's it's a same similar goal um, and definitely achieving that goal in just a different way. So that's kind of a cool opportunity that you get to right. explore right now. Yeah, and this way people are learning it in their own kitchens because I've heard feedback from other classes. They're like, wow, it was so great to make these dishes. It was great to make, you know, like Persian rice with Tadig in Mab's house with her guiding me and seeing how she does it. But then I went home to do it and completely forgot everything. (laughs) And so by doing this, like in your own kitchen, you learn it. You learn those little sensory details that sometimes you miss out on. Yeah, we for Father's Day, I have... In uh, Coral Gables, I have uh, the father and wife. And uh, in New Jersey, I have the son and family. And in Virginia, I have the daughter. So they all got got to spend Father's Day together with COVID included. (laughs) That's awesome. It's so neat. What a special experience that they wouldn't have got to have either that you guys got to bring them. They saw each other. They share the, the, the food. And they all ate the same the same dish. <laughs> I have to say, um, I have quite a bit of family based in New York City, and I have been aware of League of Kitchens for quite a while now. And it's always kind of been in the back of my head that, like, oh, the next time we manage to get down, take my kids to see their aunt or um, any of our friends that are there, you know, we're, I'm going to get a group of people together to do the League of Kitchens. So I'm just kind of happy in a way that maybe I don't have to wait now because we live in Maine now. We really don't get to New York City um, nearly as much as we'd like to anymore. It's a long drive with two young kids, but yeah. just do it online. Yeah. <laughs> have my New York friends join me in a class without actually having to get there. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. And like, we have so many, like, we've had book clubs all take a class together. We've had like a college alumni association take a class together. As Mirta mentioned, families, you know, like so many different groups of folks who are unable to interact in person, um, do it this way. So Sandy and I are are a group of, uh, a local group of um, women who work with food in in a number of different capacities. It's Women in Food Potluck, and it's sort Mm -hmm. of like, a, I don't know. It's a monthly potluck series. Yeah, (laughs) It's a fun little thing where we all get together and we potluck, but we haven't potlucked. In I don't know five or six months now because of COVID. So I don't know, Sandy. This might be oh <laughs> my god, revival for women in food in, in Portland. Here, be we'll- in- 
incredible. I hope that's such a fantastic idea. Hope and I, like, during these episodes, we make so many, like, claims. We're like, okay, so we're going to go take this class, and we're going to go to this <laughs> restaurant, and we're going to make this thing you say we like, we because there's so many awesome things going on, but that's actually an incredible idea. We can all get together and on the, the I think, show, we I think can this one actually would work for life as it is right now. Because a lot of times it's plans like let's go to a restaurant, but I mean, and and you know what I teach, <laughs> what I teach in my class is is the the, the pasta, the gnocchis. Mm-hmm. We have a history of the gnocchis in Argentina. Every twenty nine of every month, Argentina eats gnocchis. It's uh, it's the gnocchi del 29, We called it. Uh, the gnocchis of the 29. And the the story is that in Argentina, you get paid monthly. So at the beginning of the month, you have enough money to, to spend in asados and barbecuing, which is our main food. And uh, But towards the end of the month, uh, there's very little money left. So potatoes are available. And the gnocchis came out to be the gnocchis of the 29. So the tradition <laughs> is that every restaurant, they are most of the restaurants, even if they sell meat or any other specialty, uh, they always have gnocchis that day. And under the plate in a family circle, we put some money under the plate and it's a symbol, as a symbol of, of prosperity and good luck. So... We wow. we always have the the money under the plate on the twenty nine, and um, with that being said, that is a recipe that I got from my mom's uh, cookbook. When my daughter turned fifteen, I asked my mom to please make a book of all her recipes. So she hand wrote all the recipes, put some some photos. And my daughter is 40 today, and we go by that book. Um, And one thing that I always encourage people is stay family recipes. Uh, um, Tape your mom making your favorite cookie. Um, Make a movie with all the recipes that your grandchildren prefer and leave it as your legacy, but don't let uh, the recipes die with the people, with the person. It's very important to preserve family recipes. So I have this since my daughter's 15 that I've been thinking about that. And um, so my mom has many trips to the States. Uh, today she's 93 in a good head, but she lives in Argentina. She's, she just turned 93. And um, so... When um, so when my mom came to the state, one of the times was my birthday, and I asked her, "Can you please make my favorite cake?" And she says, "Of course, Nena." So I taped her from A to Z, and show me the consistency, and show me this and that, and she was just looking at the camera like a pro. <laughs> and what I did at the end of the year, I made copies of that tape and gave it as a present to every member of my family. So they won't, they won't miss my mom's favorite uh, cake, and everybody has it. So That's awesome. Yeah. How special is that, that you were able to do that? Very special. So with the phones today, it's so easy to do it. 
One thing that we keep is our traditions of making jellies and um, and uh, especially quince. Quince, it's our main fruit there, and we made all kinds of jellies and paste. So sometimes I travel in April. I travel to Mendoza to help with the production of quince paste. And I make my own queen space here in New York. As a matter of fact, COVID um, was uh, an inspiration for me to start making a, a small production of queen space, which I did over the over this COVID uh, thing. So I love to do that, and uh, you know, it was a, a custom from my family and the rest of the family to cook in season and make tomato sauce when tomato was on, uh, queen space when the queens, the fruit was in season. And we always cook and, and keep for the winter uh, our preserves. Yeah. What is queen's paste? Queen's is the oldest fruit on earth. It's queen's is like, a, it's a mix of pear, apple. It's um, originary from the Mediterranean and uh, Lebanon, Lebanon or, or Syria, um, they all, that's where they come, the fruit comes from. And it travels through Europe and then South America. Okay, it's, it's, it's spelled Q-U-I-N-C-E? Correct. Okay, and I was, it sounded, I, I've seen that before. I've seen that fruit and I've seen that word. I didn't know that's how it was pronounced. That's cool. Right. And you can eat it raw. You have to cook that fruit in order to eat it. So it's pretty expensive. Today, uh, one piece of fruit, it's similar to an apple, costs about 3 to $4 a piece. Oh, so wow. uh, cooking that is, is a delicacy, which I've been doing for many years. I stopped for a couple of years, but this COVID put me again on track and I'm making my queen's paste. Uh, that I sell it. I have my clientele. I used to sell in, in cheese stores and restaurants. But I make a small, small amount right now. So I'm going to take the conversation back because I'm kind of mulling over something that Krista said earlier about um, kind of like changing the power dynamics when it comes to cooking. And I know we're talking about how wonderful it is, um, the fact that Leak of Kitchens has man managed to um, pivot, as much as I hate the word, <laughs> and adopt kind of an online model for um, during COVID and how that's been really great. But I was just thinking about how the fact that these classes are typically or are supposed to be taught in the homes of the instructors um, does a lot for the power dynamics. So not only are you looking to all of all of the instructors who all happen to be immigrant women um, to share their knowledge and really respecting that, that they are gatekeepers of their cuisine and of their culture um, and their, their food culture, but also like putting it in their home is very different because that is where women are most powerful. And um, I'm almost going to edge on the side of people might not agree with me, but I feel like women's power, a lot of women's power. And I'm saying this as a wife and a mother and a professional cook too is based in the home and in the kitchen and there's always been a center of control there and so i'm just kind of loving that you actually invite people into your home and that dynamic that that creates is because they're truly your guests and they're truly in your space and um... right and more in and by chance we are all women in with the company 
um, but by chance. So it's not uh, that we refuse to have a man cooking, but (laughs) (laughs) to the contrary, I, even though I grew up in a, in a culture where men were dominant uh, participants in the kitchen. So we were at home, we were the, the queen, but in restaurants was men's uh, territory. Oh, interesting. Can, yeah. can you tell us more about that, about what that is like in the culture when it comes to the roles and, of male and female? And, and well, there, there are a few things that are men's uh, specialty, I would say. And it's, um, let's say, women prepare, if, if we are in a gathering eating our main food, which is barbecue, barbecuing, it's, it's just gathering people, uh, being in a circle, being with friends. But what you see is all women in the kitchen preparing salads, pies, whatever. And men bef- in front of the grill just talking about soccer and uh, and uh, making the, the grill at the barbecue. And that is the way it is. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's cultural. And then we all sit on a big, long table and you see all men together and all women together. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's interesting that there is such a, like a stereotype with men and grilling and barbecue and meat, you know, that's not like, we definitely have that up here in the States too. So it's just interesting that that's kind of ubiquitous. I wonder why. I know, I know so many men that you never see them cook until um, someone suggests like, Hey, let's barbecue tonight. And then all of a sudden the guy's cooking dinner. Yeah, I'm, I'm teaching. I'm teaching how to cook uh, to some of my friends who never cook in their lives. And a recipe that takes maybe ten minutes for me to make, it takes hours with them. No, <laughs> just don't cut the onions like that. Just do what I'm showing you, and just teaching them basic things. It's been really a labor of love. This COVID, with, with in many aspects. <laughs> That that reminds me of, so I used to myself teach cooking classes um, for just like a more of a casual based cooking school um, in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York. And there would oftentimes be couples like um, who would come as like a date night and like this, this like man and would not realize that like he would actually have to like physically participate in the cooking and the preparing of the meal. And it would be it would be these 40, 50 year old men who had never chopped an onion. Who would, <laughs> this would be their first experience chopping an onion. So they thought they were going to cooking class to watch their wife learn to cook new dishes. To watch other people do it and then be able to say, Wow, that was great. That was so fun. Oh man, that that's too much. Um, although like kind of sad, but like I'm not that surprised. Right. <laughs> And, you know, we're, we definitely love men here on Femidish, but like, yikes, sometimes we hear these stories and we're like, they, we're, we talk to women across the world and like, there are a lot of similarities between all of these men. Yeah, definitely. And I think like, just going back to what, what you were saying about the whole power dynamics, I think that like one of the things, like obviously there's, there's 
so many things to love about the model of League of Kitchens. There's so many things individually to love about our instructors and just every every piece and component um, of it. But I think one of my favorite things is just the notion that it is completely focused on shifting the narrative that these older white men from other parts of Europe are the ones who have all of the expertise. They are the ones who have all of the technique, who have all of the power, who have all of the creativity within the kitchen. Because that's not true. We know that that's not true. I mean, that's that's just a fact. Um, But I think like being able to like actively work to shift the narrative. I mean, like when we were functioning our classes in person, like our classes cost a similar, they were at a similar price point as if you were to go to ICC or IC to the, to the professional culinary schools and take a similarly timed class with a classically trained French chef, because that's how valuable the knowledge of our instructors is. It is equally as valuable. If not, I believe it's more valuable Mm. than that. And so it's like being able to be part of something that is actually changing people's opinions, changing people's way of thinking to not think that it's only these French older white men who are able to like cook these dishes and have these skills and make this living. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of interesting talk about like um, you're like, you're saying the pricing between the two classes and how important that is to just to show that value. Like um, there was a, a, when we think about like um, foods from like other cultures in America, like if you have a, a, a Chinese food, you know, or, or American Chinese food restaurant, you know, or you have like a small Central American restaurant or something, um, this, the society just assumes that those are going to be less expensive. So there's all these like, you know, you can find in sometimes like um, food writing or, you know, in, uh, food critics, how they'll say, oh, you know, the food was really, really great, but it was pretty expensive for what mm-hmm. it was. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's a real problem because it's a, it's, the, the reason that sometimes food was so cheap was because these, you know, immigrants would come from these different countries, you know, in the 18, 1900s, and they would work these crazy hours, they would never pay themselves, they would break their backs just so they could sell something, you know, and so it's just this like exploitation of that labor over time that now we just assume that, um, that that food is going to be so inexpensive, and that if it is, that if it is more pricey than um, you know, that's, that's wrong or that's bad. So it's like what you said about making those prices equal is really important, obviously for the sustainability of your program and paying mm-hmm. everyone the wage that they deserve, but even just for like your mental paradigm about it, like, of course, like, of course, these things are worth the same amount as the, you know, old French white man. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to note too, that many of those old French white men who, you know, uh, gain any sort of recognition or fame, any interview they ever do and they're like, Oh, you know, what are, where are your influences? Where did you learn? What is your experience? It's like, they might have a culinary degree or might've worked in whatever prestigious places. But a lot of them are like talking about their mom or their grandma or their auntie. Yeah. <laughs> they have restaurants and whole empires, empires named after their grandmothers and their mothers, but like they're the ones on these magazine covers and doing these shows. I'd like to see like, you know, photos of some of these men's, mothers and grandmothers on the magazine. You know, food made with love, it tastes different. So uh, that's why they they like to learn from their mothers too. Yes. Yeah. 
I wonder if it's a on sometimes I and this is just my like cynicism, you know, I wonder I'm like, do you was it really even your mother? Are you just saying that because you think we'll like you then? You know, <laughs> you think we'll <laughs> that it's a good personality trait to have or something. And I, I'm definitely not diminishing the influence of those women that had on their lives, but I still I'm like, are you just saying this because you know that's that's a special thing mm-hmm. and you wanna <laughs> capitalize on that? <laughs> Uh, but and that's interesting, Mirta, that you said the dynamic was still the same in Argentina, where you know the women ran the food in the homes, but it was always the men out at the restaurants, and they were the chefs. Right, and I have chefs, uh, women chefs, right now that are f- very few uh, in wineries. Let's say it's male dominated, and um, so there are very few women cooking in in head of the kitchen. In, uh, in Mendoza, at least. I don't know much about Buenos Aires, but I can talk about Mendoza. Yeah. So, Mirta, you know, we are on this um, podcast because we're so interested in food and we're interested in the intersection of food and women and feminism and power and all those things. And we've talked a, um, a little bit about it, you know, around all these different topics, but do you have anything um, as we start to wrap up here about, you know, being a woman in this field and being influenced by women? How do you see um, being a woman and relating to food? Do you, what, do you see any unique relationship there? Absolutely. I, I, I think I, I cook to nurture souls and, uh, and for me, cooking is the best thing that could happen uh, to to um, warm anybody. Uh, if uh, you know, it's 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 such a parallel in my life: uh, cooking and living and loving music and and women in the kitchen. That that I extended to. To kids as well, because kids love to um, cook as well. We have cooked for the youth with the League of Kitchens as well, and um, so it's a, it's a big connection. It's something that I want that to be my my legacy, and it's just encouraging people, as I said before, to save family recipes and uh, to encourage. Uh, you know, to keep the traditions alive. Yeah. That's really special. I love how you brought up the youth and your legacy. You know, that's, yeah. I definitely think that by your work with League of Kitchens, it seems like you're definitely creating that legacy right now. Uh-huh. Thank you. Yeah, I think so. We all do. Yeah. Krista, I'd like to ask you a similar question. You know, you work with all these women pretty closely and have had your own experiences. Um, do you see a unique relationship between women and food? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think my work in kitchen, so I've, I've worked in several kitchens professionally and in the bulk of those, I want to say 80% of those spaces, I was the only woman. (laughs) And that was so eye opening in the ways in which I kind of had to fight for my position. I had to fight for significance. I had to fight to be included and how difficult that was. Um, and I think that it it motivated me in such a different way to bring more value to culinary knowledge. It Because I think that oftentimes, like particularly in our own society, like 
food is so important. You know, obviously it's, it's, it's an innate need. It's something that brings folks together. It's, it's a unifier. However, people don't spend enough time thinking or valuing where does it come from? Who prepares it? How does it get here? How is it grown? Who provides it? All of those little pieces are left out. And I think that by sharing that and trying to build and nurture a community of women, that completely creates a whole element of power and control that I think is necessary. I think by, and I think this for me, like more recently, I've, I've developed so many interests in, in gardening and in growing food and in farming and even thinking there, like what small percentage of farmers are women you know, and I think like there's such and and like to echo what Mirza said, like all of the women who I've met who are farmers are so intentional about what they're growing. It's it's say a prayer when you plant these seeds. It's it's tell tell your plants what your heart is thinking. And right. there's so much love in it. There's so much care to want to take care of other people, to want to provide for other people. And I think that that is something that is very, that is such a very unique female perspective that gets put into the food and from like, from the whole supply chain, from, from, from seed to plate. I, I totally agree. I have to say my husband, he'll, he'll ask me to make certain things sometimes. And if I kind of like roll my eyes or don't seem super enthusiastic, he'll be like, well, never mind. It's not going to taste good if you don't want to make it for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, That's, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think that that is one thing that I have heard separately from each instructor's class that I've had the privilege of taking is the difference in cooking with love. Yeah, and how it makes the dish taste so much different. Yeah. One of my friends who's who's um she's a professional baker and um she was actually living in Queens for a long time or for a little while and uh I don't, I'm sure it's actually quoted to someone else but she, she always has this like little slogan on her her wall that says um there's cooking and then there's cooking with love and love just tastes so much better. But I always it, I affiliate it with this friend of mine because she has it plastered everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said that it, it, it made with love, it's great for your digestion. <laughs> <laughs> it's healthy so, or healthier when we're cooking with love. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So I would love to keep chatting, and I am totally serious that Dandy and I will be getting in touch with the League of Kitchens. <laughs> Um, to try to revive our women in food potlucks here in Portland, Maine. Um, but where could, uh, and I guess this is a question for you, Krista, where could anyone anywhere in the world, now that League of Kitchens has gone virtual and, or digital, where could they find out more about upcoming classes, how to enroll in a class, um, special events maybe, and where are you online? Yeah, so the easiest way to find our class calendar um, is at our website, which is leagueofkitchens.com. Um, also following us on Instagram, um, our handle is at League of Kitchens are both great ways in, to find out kind of like what's happening like in the moment. Um, and also subscribing to our newsletter, which comes out roughly once a week, sometimes once every two weeks. But that is also a great way to find out one like other podcast, like podcasts we may be on, um, any articles that get posted, when our calendars come out and different ways in which our instructors are being featured. That's great. Yeah, and one good thing, just to just to plug this for a second more, like the great thing about our 
our classes being online is that the price is per device. So it's not like a per person ticket. So it's a one device price and everyone in your house is able to cook along. So you're not penalized for having like a family of 12 all looking at your laptop. <laughs> not at all. We encourage it. I like it. I like the pricing system. It makes it, I'm sure, um, much more approachable for many families. Yes. I know I was taking a dance class for a while and I felt kind of bad because of course I was just paying for myself and my kids were totally doing it with me, although they're very little. So, <laughs> um, so to all of our listeners, um, of course, this has been another episode of Femidish. We have been chatting here tonight with Mirta, the Argentinian instructor for the League of Kitchens, and Krista, who is the communications director for the League of Kitchens, which is an immersive culinary experience um, led by immigrant women based in New York City. So if you want to find out more about them, you can do so at their website and on Instagram. And if you want to find out more about Sandy and I and what Femidish is and what this project is all about, you can find out about us at www.femidish.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as Femidish. So thank you, Mirta. And thank you, Krista. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And I really do hope to take one of your classes in the near future. Looking thank forward you. to have you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank and you as so. always, thank you, Sandy. Have a wonderful night. Thank Everyone. you. All. Good night. Good night. We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you